Welcome to the Exit Your Business Your Way podcast with Ross Brayman, guiding business owners to the exit they deserve. Ross is a financial advisor who knows that business owners work too hard on growing and caring for their businesses not to leave it on their terms. Each week he interviews a different experienced business owner, expert, and other professionals ready to teach you effective, satisfying business exit strategies that will let you exit your business your way. Don't wait until it's too late. Start thinking exit now. Here's your host, Ross Brannan. Welcome to the show. My guest today is Stuart Sorkin. Stuart is the founder of the Business and Legal Advisors, a consulting firm specializing in the financial and legal protection of business owners, executives, and entrepreneurs throughout the United States and overseas at every stage of their business cycle. Now, Stuart does a ton, so I'm going to cut the bio out right there and let you guys hear from him directly what everything he does. Stuart, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much for the opportunity. So I work with clients, basically many succession plans, exit strategies, or growth plans fail because either the owners haven't figured out what they need to get out of the business to make the business successful for them, or the partners have not necessarily have not come up with a common business plan that they are rowing the boat in the same direction. So one of the first things that I believe that owners who are considering selling their business need to figure out is, have they met with a financial planner to find out what their numbers are? What do they need? When you say their numbers, you're referring to, hey, how much money do you need to live post-exit, correct? Correct. What What is your number to do everything that you want to do with the, with the rest of your life and providing for your family and for next generation. And how many of them actually have had that conversation? Probably 30% have, and I hopefully push at least half of my clients to do that before we go to the next level. Because the issue is, unless the partner's have a common goal as to the value of the business, they may be making decisions that are contrary to getting to that number. So the idea first is, what do each of the partners need? Also, does one of the partners feel that one of his kids is going to stay in the business? How is that going to affect a potential transaction? Is there, and if there are kids in the business and outside the business, and there's going to be a sale of the business in some form, how are you going to equalize and balance your estate if that's your intent? Yeah, so let's 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 back up a second and talk about your uh, your bio and basically your street cred, if you will, to use my terms. You've authored a book called "Expensive Mistake When Buying and Selling Companies and How to Avoid Them in Your Deals." What is a 30-second synopsis of that book to uh, so people will know, hey, maybe they should buy this book. The book basically is 57 short stories on positives and negatives in growing the value of your business, and it's broken up into five chapters. First chapter is about sellers, about people who are going to be looking at eventually growing for sale what they have to do to have a business that's worth selling. Second chapter is the buyer side is that they are considering acquisitions. What are they looking for? The next two chapters are the buyer and seller side of 
an acquisition? What are the issues that fall apart there? And finally, and this is the area that tends to get the shortest shrift is, how have you figured you're going to integrate an acquisition if you are acquiring a company? Because that's where most of the failures take place is a failure to integrate properly or to integrate efficiently enough where you truly recognize the value of the acquisition as quickly as possible. It's a really good point. So you're an attorney, you're a CPA, and the most important thing from my perspective that you have is you have an LLM Master of Tax Law. There is one, Ross, let me say, I have one unique experience level that probably most attorneys do not have, which is in 1983, I was hired by Coopers and Librand to start their tax application software division, which I ran for five years. And so I actually have built a business within a large corporation. So I have a more practical view of being understanding what it is an entrepreneur is going through when they are growing their business. Well, that, I mean, that's a really good point. So I mean, lots of people have CPAs, lots of people have lawyers, but talk about the combination of the attorney being an attorney, a CPA, and an LLM, and that unique skill set and how it benefits people. Well, I have a simple comment that not all business advice, not all all legal advice is good business advice, and not all decisions should be the tax tail wagging the dog and give you two quick examples of of where that falls apart or where that comes into play. One is CPAs tend to look at transactions as everything's got to be currently deductible. They don't want to get yelled at when they owe a tax bill. Right. But the idea here is that a plan recently I was involved with, the client was a 68-year-old gentleman who was selling his remaining interest in his business to his family. And basically, the CPA said, oh, well, it's easy. We're going to pay him deferred comp for 10 years. Well, if the guy is 68 years old, him running out of money at 78 was not a real intriguing plan for him. So instead, what we did was we did an interest-only loan for the first 10 years with some deferred comp and then had a note that ran out for another 10 years. So now I've got a secure family. I've also, by the way we structured it, was able to minimize taxes on the capital gains in the first couple of years because he had no other income and therefore was close to the zero tax bracket or in the 10% tax bracket on the capital gains. So by looking at the transaction in a different format, it's not just tax, it's not just law, It's figuring out from a business perspective, the goal you're trying to accomplish. The idea here is that if you are trying to grow your business and you have not evaluated since 2017, whether you should stay an S Corp or whether you should become a C Corp, I think you are committing business malpractice. Oh, I've heard you talk about this before. I know you get fired up on this one. Well, here's my real question. If you are trying to grow your business today, the combined effective tax rate on a corporation is about 25%. 21% federal deductible state income taxes. For an individual, 
you're talking about a tax rate of 40 plus percent because no deductible state income taxes plus other taxes that kick in depending on where you're at. When well, so those taxes going to go up 2.6% in uh, three and a half years? Correct. And if you, so the question comes in is, if you are trying to grow your business, would you rather have 75 cent after-tax dollars or 55 cent after-tax dollars to grow your business? And it's not for everyone. But the idea here is there are several other advantages of a C-Corp over an S-Corp. One is multiple classes of equity. You cannot, if you are trying, if you need investment capital to grow your business, most investors are not going to put their money in on the same level as you. They're going to want some kind of liquidation preference, some kind of preferred rate of return. Can't do that with an S-Corp because you can only have one class of stock. Well, let me, let me stop and ask you, how big of a company do you need to be from a revenue standpoint to consider a C-Corporation? I don't think it, let me put it this way. I have been a C corporation since 1990 running my sole practice. Oh, wow. Okay. Because here's the other point I'm going to make to you is the big issue. There are two big issues why people say, well, we don't want to do a C corp. First is double taxation. Well, today, if you take 15%, which is the capital gains rate on dividends and 21%, Corporate tax rate, that's 36. Maximum individual rate is 37. Therefore, double tax is not as big a problem as it used to be because at worst, it goes up five points if you exceed the capital gain, if you're in the max tax bracket for capital gain. However, the other point is, is this, that today it is extremely difficult to get a key employee bound by a covenant not to compete. However, If you make him a stockholder and you say a portion of the purchase price on that stock is allocated to a covenant not to compete, you've got a completely enforceable covenant against the employee. You're holding the money, so you've shifted the litigation risk from the company. Let me dumb that down for people if they're not familiar. Basically, you're saying any typical non-compete agreement you have an employee sign is basically unenforceable. It's an empty threat. It's an empty threat under today if it's purely a covenant not to compete for a key employee. Most states have either thrown them out or basically said it's not enforceable or it's going to be significantly restricted. But if you marry a golden handcuff and a non-compete, then you actually have the power to enforce something. Correct, because the fact is you're saying I'm paying you for the stock. And part of the price I'm paying you for the stock is that you're not going to devalue the stock I'm paying you by competing with me afterwards. See, that, that's a brilliant solution that I've actually never heard someone, uh, someone bring up. And, uh, but you can only do that with a C corporation. And S corporation, that's not an option. Correct. And or an LLC. Which, leads you, which leaves you with the only concept that generally happens with, with, with S corps is phantom equity. And the term phantom equity has all sorts of problems with explaining to, to, to an employee the term phantom equity and what that really means. Right. Plus, you're giving them all ordinary income. If the other piece of this employee equity, though, Ross, is, is this, that if I've done this right, I've converted what was 100% ordinary income 
on a change in control payment to 80% capital gains. And if that's true, I can say to Mr. Key employee, Mr. Key employee, I've cut your tax rate substantially. In exchange for that, you're going to agree that you're going to only get 20% of your sales price in closing, and you're going to get 60% at the earlier of one year after acquisition or 30 days after constructive termination. Change your job title, move you, cut your pay, whatever. So the point is, you've now delivered an impact management team for one year and a non-compete for a second year. That should add anywhere from 25 to 100 basis points through EBITDA multiplier. Do you find that, I mean, most people in my experience were anti-C corporation. Most people kind of opened up to a little bit after the Trump tax cuts in 2017, but that was kind of a flash in the pan. And most people are still anti-C corporation. Uh, you know, obviously, unless you're like, for example, Home Depot is obviously a C corporation. You're taking, you know, if you're a public company, whatever. Do you find that you are um, typically the unicorn in the room when you're always saying, hey, uh, "Not you." I won't say I'm the unicorn, but I'm going to say that when I just recently did a seminar, I had a heckler who said, and I said, "It doesn't apply to everyone." But here, here's my other comment that I think that people have lost sight of to a point. And that is, you have double tax if you don't know where you are at year end. And my comment to you is, I don't know that I work with any client that doesn't know by November 30th where they're going to end up at the year end within 5%. And therefore, in today's world, planning around the double tax problem is not what it used to be. So, I mean, that's part of it is that, you know, we have far more automated records. We know, we we pretty much know what our client piece is. I have clients who don't, you know, if they've already made their numbers, they stop billing in December. Yeah. You know, so you can control the revenue. And the there, are there specific industries that should be C-Corps or should consider being a C-Corp more than others? Well, let me put it this way. Government contractors, there's no reason why they shouldn't because they're always going to sell as a stock deal. That's the other issue why people do not run afoul of the S versus C is the issue is 70% or more of the deals that are done as an acquisition are done as, are done as asset deals and therefore generate effectively double tax, which is why the, the people fought, fight the, who don't like S, the C's versus the S. But I'm going to say there are two issues. One if you don't have significant assets, like if you're an SAS company, you know, you're good performing services and you don't have a lot of assets, there's really no big advantage for the company to do an asset sale because they're not getting any assets to write up. It's interesting. So let's kind of step back and talk about overall businesses, business owners and an exit strategy. You know, I think you and I have worked with business owners and they sometimes are a little naive that they don't think they're going to exit their business. You know, I, I tend to be somewhat blunt about it and be like, well, everyone's going to exit their business. You're either going to die at your desk or you're going to, or, or you're going to sell one of the two. Well, my comment is, is there are only five ways to exit a business. You sell to family, you sell to management, you sell to a third party, 
it gets liquidated or you die. If you don't choose one of the first three, the last two are going to happen. Yeah. And by liquidated, that's not good for those of you who may not. not and exactly. Liquidation is not necessarily a good thing. But uh, And here's the other point is that most entrepreneurs have no concept of the unplanned exit. What happens when they get hit by a bus? Well, most entrepreneurs are like the 20 or 21 year version of a male who think that they're invincible and they're going to live forever. And, um, you know, we all probably have some level of that to a degree, but not near as much as we did when we were 21. But when you're an entrepreneur, right. you know, you tend to have a little bit more of that attitude, which is part of the reason why you're good at what you do. Well, you know, there's an old adage, your greatest strength is your greatest weakness. And the problem with most entrepreneurs is the reason they're successful is because of their beliefs in themselves, because they're selling themselves when they're selling their business. The problem is that also makes them think that they're the smartest man in the room and their willingness to listen to other people becomes more of a problem. Yeah. So I talk about this a lot. Obviously, you work with a lot of businesses who are trying to transition, have an exit. And, um, you know, you and I know that true planning for an exit takes time. How many business owners don't fully understand or appreciate the amount of time and work that necessary that's necessary to create a successful transaction. I would say that 80% do not understand either the timing or the alternatives which they could take to potentially increase the value of their business. Well, so that, that that's important when you said right there. So like I'm John Doe, I come to Stuart Sorkin I'm like, I want to sell my company for $10 million and I want to sell the next six months. And you're like, nope, not going to happen. I can tell the idea here is that first, we need to understand where the business is and how that $10 million number, is that $10 million number even reasonable? In- well, if the seller's telling you on the front end, it's then you probably know it's not. Right. So the question comes in is, first, okay, you get $10 million. After tax, are you financially secure for the rest of your life? That, you know, you walk away. What are you going to do? What are you going to do when you walk away? And do you have enough money to walk away? These are questions that no one really thinks about. No. And the other point is, if you're not there, if you're, this is why I said the first thing is have them run a financial plan to find out what their number is and then figure out what the value of the business The next question is, okay, if you're not there, how are you going to get there? Can you do it through internal growth or do you have to become a strategic acquirer? Well, and and so the second part is you're talking to them and you're like, well, Mr. or Mrs. Business Owner, if after a handful of conversations, if you did A, B, and C over the next five years, you could double your sales price. Right. Exactly. And that's probably a worthwhile investment of your time and effort. Exactly. And the point is, it might be three years, but here's the other point I'm going to make to you. One of the things that I think that is hard for people to understand is that if they're truly selling the business, except for a strategic partner, they're going to want your management team. If you're selling to a financial, if you're selling to a financial buyer, if you're selling to management, if you're selling to your family, you need to retain those people. And the issue is why it takes some time is it breathes insecurity to start talking about golden handcuff planning 
people start thinking, oh, he's going to sell. Maybe I should leave. So you, if, if you don't do this in a timely fashion or you end up with employees who say, oh, you didn't tell me you were selling, then you, go, you put them under a golden handcuff and then you flip on them that you're selling three months later. That does not breed real good situations. So having some time there, plus the other point that I, that I tell clients is you can't get in trouble if you tell the story right. So one of the stories that I like to say is have Mr. Founder go into his key employees and say, look, I just met with my estate planner. He's all over me that I don't have anything in place that, God forbid, I got hit by a bus that this business is going to work real well. I'd like to put in a plan that protects the business, protects all of you. Now, the good news is when you do that, you can plan for the planned as well as the unplanned exit. And here's another little point that, that I think gets that a lot of entrepreneurs make. Oh, my family's going to take over the business if something happened to me. Well, that might work three to six months after your death. They are not going to be able to walk in the day after the funeral and act like Alexander Haig and say, I'm in charge. Don't worry. You all got jobs. If you do not have that in the two to three months before your family gets back, you will have Katie barred a door with regard to your employees. So you, the idea of, and so one of the things I suggest is that even if you don't necessarily have a management team, if you have someone you really trust, then maybe in your state planning documents, you say, I'm voting my stock to name this person CEO to run the company in the interim until either my family can take over or it's ready for sale. That that's pretty shrewd. Now let's go back to a second to, for golden handcuffs. Mm-hmm. Lay out some um, some specific examples of golden handcuffs you've worked on, how they were structured or funded, kind of how, what they were set up like. Sure. As we talked about the concept of delivering, if you can deliver the impact management team, that's going to add value to the business. So getting employees to agree that on a change in control that they are going to potentially defer some of their proceeds to stay post. Plus, here's the other point about golden handcuffing the key employees. 60% of the deals that go to LOI don't close, go get, end up with final executed documents and definitive. A percentage of that is the greedy employee who you in the sense that the employee, the acquirer comes in and says, I got, you got to deliver this general manager. You don't have a deal with him. How much is it going to cost you? Wow. Versus having them nailed down beforehand. Yeah. And if you're running your business well, because so many entrepreneurs, they are the business. If they disappear, then the business disappears. Yes. So the, the, to, to make your business sellable, you have to have a management team that can run the company when you're on vacation in Italy for a month. Right. And, but anybody more than likely is going to leave the company when a third party comes in and upsets the apple cart. But the key for the deferred comp is to structure it where it's a tremendous financial disincentive for them to leave. Correct. So when you structure these things, is it typically cash? Is it typically uh, and like, well, here, here, here's the issue. If I have a key employee, I'm more concerned about competing. I'm going to go more with towards an equity deal. 
because I can't get the covenants necessarily. Only if it's a C Corp, though. Yes, I have done. Well, let me put it this way. Here's the issue. I, with this, with, you can do it also with LLCs, obviously. Okay. The S Corp is, is problematic. You have a phantom. You can still have a phantom plan that allocates the covenant not to compete. It's a question at that point is since it's a phantom plan and it's a bonus, whether or not you have the ability, courts have not really ruled on the issue of if you're getting something based on a change in control, whether or not that still would create an enforceable covenant. It's it's the issue is that people just put them in the employment contracts and that's where there's an issue because there's no additional compensation necessarily. If the Phantom Plan is compensating them for it, and it's an additional incentive because you're selling the company, I think there is more likelihood the court will enforce it. But it's it's clearly not as good as a C Corp where you know they're going to enforce it. Okay, so how would you structure a deferred comp typically? If it, it's so, it's, um, well, it's here, 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 here's the question with deferred comp. Is it for the founders or is it for the, is, that's another advantage of a C-Corp is that you can't with an S-Corp set up a non-qualified deferred comp plan for a founder, for an owner. You can within a C-Corp. So if you're making more money than you need and you want to put more away for retirement, wouldn't you rather put away those dollars using the C-Corp at 75 cents into a non-qualified deferred comp plan? Yeah. And the other area where I do a lot of non-qualified deferred comp plans is I may have a founder who's got a senior management, a member of senior management who says, I love my job, but I'm not sure I'm going to be here when he sells. So equity has no interest in me because I'm his contemporary. I may be out the door before him. So how does equity benefit? Me? So non-qualified deferred comp plans are really good potentially for seeing for execs that are, the same age as the founder and not necessarily on the same retirement plan as the founders. It makes sense. It makes sense. So let's, let's talk for a second here. It's like, what do you see if you could break down like the top three challenges or things that business owners have not considered, but need to address when they're getting ready to sell their business, what would you say those are? Number one is the one thing that's going to be different when you sell the business is you're not there. So you better have filled those skill sets or your acquirer is going to fill those skill sets. And if he's going to have to, if he's not doing it personally, then he's going to have to hire someone, which means he's going to probably put more on your pricing. So first thing is, what are the things that you do that no one else does in the business? And how do you develop management to take those, start taking those responsibilities. That's again why it takes time, because you're not going to instantly be able to delegate things. It's going to take time to get comfortable to delegate certain decisions and certain things. But unless you've done that delegation, you're going to leave a huge gaping hole in the business. So that's one. Another area that I that I'm that I focus on, and it's only because of my personal experience with my co-author, is some people can sell their business 
and continue to work there? Some can't. I would think most could not. Because the issue you have is that this is your baby. And now someone else is parenting your baby. And if you don't, and if you take it personally that they're parenting it differently, you're going to be very uncomfortable, very unhappy. And you're also going to set up the situation potentially, unless it's defined in advance, that the employees are going to probably come to you first if they have an issue rather than going to the new guy, to the founder. What about the flip side of, as the owner, you can come and go as you please, but now you're a W-2 employee and you're there nine to five. Right. And you also don't get choice of what you're doing. You now have to do something, but you may have to do stuff you don't want to do anymore. And my co-author probably could have retained, gotten in, maybe another million dollars out of the business fee and would been willing to stay for a year or two. But he said, no, if I'm leaving, I can't be there. It's the antithesis of my personality. Well, so, so- good self-awareness. Lots of times when you sell a private equity, uh, I've seen at least in the medical dental world is they're going to make you stay on for an earn out. They're going to hold back 30%. Oh, yeah. For three to five year earn out. Yeah, I'm seeing even in, I'm now seeing a lot more even with private equity and things like the auto body shop world, where they're saying, we want you to roll over five or 10% into our PE. Yeah, yeah. So you're seeing, you're seeing more of that. And by so the way, man, in, the dental world, in the dental world, that rollover is a lot more, um, but they, they like to sprinkle a lot of fairy dust and unicorns on top of that, telling you on what kind of multiple that's going to end up being. Oh, yeah, exactly. The other thing when you talk about medical, dental, or other professional practices is do they practice the same way? I have had medical dental deals blow up because either the old the guy that stay the old guy is is not practicing modern way and the young guy is upset with him or the young guy practices differently doesn't doesn't treat his patients the same way as the old guy does or the one that really caused the problem is the the young guy came in and so pissed off the entire dental staff they all quit and as you know the dental hygienist is really where you make money. So yeah, the idea of, is if you are bringing on junior partners for transition, you got to live together before you get married. I've seen too many deals where if they find this hot young doc and they say, oh, we're going to bring him in. You know, he's going to be great for our exit strategy. And there are more issues that are created by bringing him in than not. So that's why the idea of, of living together before you do something, before you look at a growth in a personal service business is really important. What's easier, selling to uh, an inside sale or uh, a third-party sale? I think in some ways a third-party sale is easier because you don't have necessarily the personalities, the ego, and the history that you may have in negotiating between existing management and the founders because you have more of an issue of what their relative, what they believe their relative contributions were. How often do you see where ESOPs make sense? ESOPs are incredibly good transactions on one level, though, and that is you don't need to live off the proceeds because the whole advantage of, and this is another one, 
you're doing a C, if you're doing an ESOP, the seller wants a C corp because he wants that tax deferral. And you want, and here's the, if you're looking at ESOP, you also, if that's true, you want to convert to a C to get your better tax status. You want to start your five-year run. So once they're an ESOP for a couple of years, they can convert to S and eliminate all taxes because the buyer and seller are, the buyer and the ESOP are in some ways in a different position. So, you switch to a C Corp. If you switch from an LLC or an S Corp to a C Corp, what's that process look like? What does that need? To, what needs to happen? Well, let's put it this way: with a S Corp, there's going to be some issues when you could do the conversion. Well, actually, if you're converting from S to C, you've got the issues of the previously taxed income that've got to be stripped out. You get a period of time to strip those out tax-free. Usually, I think it's 12 months after the act within the the subsequent tax year, you've got to strip out any previously taxed income. With the C-Corp, if you're converting back from the C-Corp, you may have some built-in gain tax issues on an eventual sale. But if you're in the ESOP, that's less of an issue because you're already there. And the big issue is the cost of an ESOP. An ESOP is going to cost anywhere from $100,000 to $200,000 more in transactional costs. And you are, remember that your value is going to be set by an independent trustee. So they're not going to pay you the same kind of premiums necessarily as a financial buyer or a strategic buyer. Yeah, so that's, that's probably accept a lower price. So the, this is the analysis I went through with one client is, is looking at this. We've, based on the offer he had for a third party sale, we figured out if he got, 70% or better from the ESOP, he was going to be in better shape. And he ensures that all his employees stay employed. Correct. And it suit, in this case, it suits his goal of he is very paternalistic and wants his employees to participate. So as we wind down here, let me ask you just a couple more questions. Sure. What is one piece of advice that you can say through your decades of experience that every business owner probably isn't doing, but absolutely need to be doing? Lack of any kind of long-term plan. That's probably the biggest one. And by long-term plan, or a lack of agreement between the partners as to a long-term plan. Now, define long-term. Five years? Ten years? Three to five. Three to five. Okay. Because the point is, if you don't set goals, how can you create measurable milestones to figure out if you're getting them? Yeah. You got to have some goals in mind to set milestones. Yeah. So and, that makes perfect sense. So let's talk about your practice. What areas do you specialize in? Who should be reaching out to you if they hear this podcast? There are a couple of different areas. As I said, business and legal advisors aligning your personal and business goals for a successful future. As I said earlier, getting the owners financial plan in order, getting their estate plan in order, there are things to consider. Um, if you're creating potentially in multi-generational wealth, there are different types of tax planning you may want to do. If, um, you know, if kids are in the business, you have to figure out how that gets factored in your estate plan with equality. Because I find, as an example, when I do a, usually a family buyout, they're usually structured one of three ways. Either 
The owner really doesn't care. The father doesn't really need the money, doesn't care about the money. So he sells it for a note and he forgives it to death. And it's basically an advance on the inheritance. And there may or may not be a catch up with the other children, depending on the situation. The second one is the one who needs income currently, but doesn't really care about anything. If, if he's gotten his income during his life, he really doesn't care about the principal going to the other family members. So again, you structure the income piece for current payments, and then you forgive the note at, at the end. The third way is, you know, you're selling the business, you're selling it to family, they're going to pay the note, and you just have to now structure. The big issue you have to structure around is the what will, in order to preserve family harmony, you do not want children and debtor-creditor relationships. So the idea of making sure that if the real estate is also owned, that it's under a long-term lease to protect the to protect the owners of the real estate. How do you protect you make sure that you protect the family members who aren't in the business without putting the members in the family business in an untenable position of having to work for someone who has no invested it's a passive investment? Makes sense. Are there any industries that you specialize in, or is, are you really industry agnostic? I am industry agnostic. However, I do a lot of work in the area of professional service businesses, architectural, accounting, law firms, etc. A lot of work with government contractors being in Washington, D.C., work a lot in the auto body shop arena, which is an area I fell into many years ago and continue to do a lot of work in. And there's a lot of consolidation PE in that area. And then real estate, just because that was where my family was originally. So where, um, how, if people want to get in touch with you, how, how would they get in touch with you? They can contact, if they go on, uh, they can go on my website and they can send me an email and the initial consult, I, all consult, initial consultations are always complimentary. The only thing I ask is that I have a two page questionnaire that I will send to the founder beforehand because I do not want to spend 30 minutes learning about the business. I'd like to know about the business, something about the business before I have the discussion with them so I can actually maybe give them some real recommendations to consider in that complimentary call. And that's businessandlegalsadvisors.com, correct? That is correct. So business and legal. So you're listening, you want to talk to a straight up transaction ninja, businessandlegaladvisors.com. There are very, very few people with the breadth of knowledge that Stuart has. He's an attorney, a CPA, has a master's in tax law. This is a skill set that does not come along very much. Stuart, I really appreciate you coming on today. This has, as always, been a very informative conversation. Thank you very much, Ross, for the time. And if any of your listeners wants to contact me, feel free to give me a call and we can set up a complimentary call to discuss how we might be able to work together. Fantastic. You've been listening to the Exit Your Business Your Way podcast with Ross Brennan.
This podcast is for informational purposes only. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by PAS, Guardian, or North Florida Financial, and opinions stated are their own. External sites and materials are provided for your convenience in locating related information and services. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees expressly disclaim any responsibility for and do not maintain, control, recommend, or endorse third-party sites, organizations, products, or services, and make no representation as to the completeness, suitability, or quality thereof. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Consult your tax, legal, or accounting professional regarding your individual situation. Ross is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS, OSJ, 3664, Coolidge Court, Tallahassee, Florida, 32311, 850-562-9075. Security products and advisory services offered through PAS. Member FINRA, SIPC, financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. North Florida Financial is not an affiliate or substitute of PAS or Guardian. Arkansas Insurance License 16139032. California Insurance License Number 0L100732022-148132, expires 1224.